politics, and current events. From the housetops, coming up next. Our Quest for Happiness Perhaps our Lord was thinking of the seven sacraments when he related the parable of the Good Samaritan. Certainly, when he speaks of a man who has been robbed, he is thinking of one who has been robbed of the supernatural wealth of divine grace. And when he speaks of the Samaritan and the inn to which he brings the half-dead man, he is representing himself and the church. The certain man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is Adam, and in him we see the whole human race. By Jerusalem could be understood the Garden of Eden, and Jericho, perhaps the world into which Adam and all mankind were forced to enter because of sin. The robbers who attack the man, stripping him, beating him, and leaving him half dead, are Satan and the devils. Mankind is stripped of sanctifying grace, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, and the theological and moral virtues. With his intellect darkened and his will weakened, man is now strongly inclined to evil. The priest and the Levite who come upon the victim and who pass by without stopping may represent the patriarchs and Moses, who did not free the people completely from the tyranny of Satan. The Samaritan must be Christ himself. While on earth, our Lord is moved to compassion at the sight of man's state. He forgives sinners, heals the sick, the blind, the lame, the deaf, and the dumb. We can think of the church as an inn, a storehouse of grace, the great and glorious church that Christ founded as a haven of rest for the weary and wounded travelers in this vale of tears. The innkeeper, the keeper of the keys, St. Peter and his successors with the bishops and priests of the church, receives money from the Good Samaritan. The money is the grace necessary for man's spiritual health, given by Christ and administered through the seven sacraments. Through these sacraments, man's life, the life of the soul, is regenerated and preserved until Christ returns to give it the everlasting happiness of heaven. Lent solemnly opens today. Although we may always, by God's grace, have access to His mercy, we ought to redouble our efforts to make spiritual progress and be animated with unusual confidence now that the anniversary of the day of our redemption is approaching. The Church invites us to devote ourselves to every good work so that we may celebrate with purity of body and mind the incomparable mystery of our Lord's Passion. Each Sunday of Lent offers to our consideration a passage from the Gospel. Today she brings before us the temptation of our Lord in the desert. What light and encouragement there is for us in this instruction. We acknowledge ourselves to be sinners. We are engaged at this very time in doing penance for the sins we have committed. But how was it that we fell into sin? The devil tempted us. We did not reject the temptation. Then we yielded to the suggestion, and the sin was committed. This is the history of our past, and such it would also be for the future, were we not to profit by the lesson given us today by our Redeemer on how to gain victory under temptation. Satan has had his eye upon Jesus. He is troubled at beholding such matchless virtue. The wonderful circumstances of his birth, the shepherds called by angels to his crib, and the magi guided by the star, the infant's escape from Herod's plot, the testimony rendered to this new prophet by John the Baptist. All these things, which seem so out of keeping with the thirty years spent in obscurity at Nazareth, 
are a mystery to the infernal serpent and fill him with apprehension. The ineffable mystery of the Incarnation has been accomplished unknown to him. He never once suspects that the humble Virgin Mary is she who was foretold by the prophet Isaiah as having to bring forth the Emmanuel. But he is aware that the time has come, that the last week spoken of to Daniel has begun its course, and that the very pagans are looking towards Judea for a deliverer. He is afraid of this Jesus. He resolves to speak with him and elicit from him some expression which will show him whether he be or not the Son of God. He will tempt him to some imperfection or sin, which, should he commit it, will prove that the object of so much fear is, after all, but a mortal man. The enemy of God and men is, of course, disappointed. He approaches Jesus, but all his efforts turn only to his own confusion. Our Redeemer, with all the self-possession and easy majesty of a God-man, repels the attacks of Satan, but he reveals not his heavenly origin. The wicked spirit retires without having made any discovery beyond this, that Jesus is a prophet, faithful to God. Later on, when he sees the Son of God treated with contempt, calumniated and persecuted, when he finds that his own attempts to have him put to death are so successful, his pride and his blindness will be at their height, and not till Jesus expires on the cross will he learn that his victim was not merely man, but man and God. Then will he discover how all his plots against Jesus have but served to manifest, in all their beauty, the mercy and justice of God, his mercy because he saved mankind, and his justice because he broke the power of hell forever. These were the designs of divine providence in permitting the wicked spirit to defile, by his presence, the retreat of Jesus, to speak to him, and to lay his hands upon him. But let us attentively consider the triple temptation in all its circumstances, for our Redeemer suffered it only in order that he might instruct and encourage us. We have three enemies to fight against. Our soul has three dangers. For, as the beloved disciple says, all that is in the world is the concupiscence of the flesh and the concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life. By the first is meant the love of sensual things, which covets whatever is agreeable to the flesh, and, when not curbed, draws the soul into unlawful pleasures. Concupiscence of the eyes expresses the love of goods of this world, such as riches and possessions. These dazzle the eye and then seduce the heart. Pride of life is that confidence in ourselves, which leads us to be vain and presumptuous, and makes us forget that all we have, our life and every good gift, we have from God. Every one of our sins comes from one of these three sources. Every one of our temptations aims at making us accept the concupiscence of the flesh, or the eyes, or the pride of life. Our Savior then, who would be our model in all things, deigned to subject himself to these three temptations. First of all, Satan tempts him in what regards the flesh. He suggests to him to satisfy the cravings of hunger by working a miracle and changing the stones into bread. If Jesus consents and shows an eagerness in giving this indulgence to his body, the tempter will conclude that he is but a frail mortal, subject to concupiscence like other men. When he tempts us who have inherited evil concupiscence from Adam, his suggestions go further than this. He endeavors to defile the soul by the body. But the sovereign holiness of the incarnate word 
could never permit Satan to use upon him the power which he has received of tempting man in his outward senses. The lesson, therefore, which the Son of God here gives us is one of temperance. But we know that, for us, temperance is the mother of purity, and that intemperance excites our senses to rebel. The second temptation is to pride. Cast thyself down, the angels shall bear thee up in their hands. The enemy is anxious to see if the favors of heaven have produced in Jesus' soul that haughtiness and ungrateful self-confidence which makes the creature forget its divine benefactor. Here also he is foiled. Our Redeemer's humility confounds the pride of the rebel angel. He then makes a last effort. He hopes to gain over by ambition him who has given such proofs of temperance and humility. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and says to him, All these will I give thee, if, falling down, thou wilt adore me. Jesus rejects the wretched offer, and drives from him the seducer, the prince of this world, hereby teaching us that we must despise the riches of the world. But let us observe how it is that our divine model, our Redeemer, overcomes the tempter. Does he hearken to his words? Does he allow the temptation time and give it strength by delay? We did so when we were tempted, and we fell. But our Lord immediately meets each temptation with the shield of God's word. He says, It is written, Not on bread alone doth man live. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, The Lord thy God thou shalt adore, and him only shalt thou serve. This, then, must be our practice for the time to come. Eve brought perdition on herself and on the whole human race because she listened to the serpent. He that plays with temptation is sure to fall. We are now in a season of extraordinary grace. Our hearts are on the watch. Dangerous occasions are removed. Everything that savors of worldliness is laid aside. Our souls, purified by prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, are to rise with Christ to a new life. But shall we persevere? All depends upon how we behave under temptation. Here, at the very opening of Lent, the Church gives us this passage of the Holy Gospel, that we may have not only precept, but example. If we be attentive and faithful, the lesson she gives us will produce its fruit. And when we come to the Easter solemnity, we shall have those sure pledges of perseverance, vigilance, prayer, and the never-failing help of divine grace. Stay with us. We'll be back with more From the Housetops after this break. We're listening to 89.3 FM WQPH Shirley Fitchburg. Tim Kilcoyne, WQPH Radio 89.3 FM, offering a Lenten reflection that I hope will be practical and represent your needs, not your necessary desires. I'm reminded of a book called Three Irish Saints, St. Brendan, St. Patrick, and St. Bridget. St. Brendan was noted for being a thinker, St. Patrick a doer, and St. Bridget a lover. Now think, what must you do to balance and integrate all three of those charisms? You could go visit a monastery, sit still before the Blessed Sacrament, take some time out with a good book before Jesus. You could visit that nursing home. Maybe a grandmother or an old aunt is still there waiting. And a little casual catechesis with an old friend that needs to discover the Catholic faith. 
Try any one of the three or all of them. God bless you. This Lent, may I suggest that you consider the fact that there is a person who is madly in love with you as an individual, so much so that he never stops thinking of you, desiring your good and yearning for you to visit him so that he can be consoled by you and so he can pour out gifts upon you more valuable than any treasure on earth. Yes, he is so deeply in love with you that he literally laid down his life for you in a very costly, bloody, painful manner. He is not indifferent as to whether you come to him. Only you can placate the thirst he experiences for you. This Lent, come to Jesus often in holy mass and adoration. How blessed you will be. I'm Jim Littleton, forming FaithfulFamilies.com. And now, WQPH presents a Lenten message from Bishop Emeritus of the Worcester Diocese, Daniel P. Riley. Try to keep God in your life. Once you become separated from God, life can go in many, many strange directions. If God is there at the center of your life, God, who is the creator of all this world, the Son of God came to redeem us and make it possible for us to live forever in the glory of heaven, in the presence of God. To keep God in the center of your life and to be aware that everything going on in the world is not good just because it's done, it's not good. There is such a thing as sin, and we must admit sin. Sin separates us from that love of God that is the most important gift that we can have in this life. We're living in the period of Lent right now, and I say concentrate on God's love for you and seek to love God in return. Hello, this is Kendra Von Esch, a recovered corporate executive who left it all behind to help bring others to a deeper relationship with God and the beautiful Catholic faith. Here is my reflection for today. Forgiveness. Isn't it amazing that we have this incredible sacrament of reconciliation where we can go to Jesus with all of our sins and be forgiven when we walk out of that confessional? It's awesome, isn't it? So why is it so hard for us to forgive other people? A few years back, I struggled with forgiveness, and one of them was with my very own brother. He had a bit of an addiction problem, and I just plain old didn't like him, and I wasn't shy about saying it to other people. And then there was a professional peer of mine, which I had true disdain for. Every time I thought about him, I had nightmares about him. I really didn't like him at all. And lo and behold, I started hearing on the radio and reading in scriptures that if we expect Jesus to forgive us, we also have to forgive others. We need to make things right and reconcile with our brethren. So I figured I could not do this on my own. I went to God, and I prayed so much for the grace of forgiveness. And it took a few months, but it eventually came. And now my relationship with my very own brother is like night and day. I hug him, and I kiss him, and I say I love him, and I pray for him. I invite him over and hang out, and I got to tell you, it is totally different. Same thing with my professional peer, who I don't see anymore, but I don't have these 
sinking feelings in my stomach when I think about him, and I actually wish really good things for him, and I pray for his well-being as well. And that is the grace of God. So if you're having trouble forgiving someone, know this. You expect God to forgive you, and you need to forgive others. So go to Him and ask Him for that grace. For more inspiration, free downloads, and resources, check out KendraVonEsch.com. Have a blessed and inspired day. Hi, I'm Bob Young. I live in Lemonster. I want to thank WQPH for being here, 89.3 FM. We continue now with the apocalyptic New Age, the city of God versus the city of man. The greatest single source of resistance, the greatest obstacle to the New Age ideology and its revolution, has been until recently the Catholic Church. But Vatican II's dialogue between the Church and the world, to use Pope Paul's phrase, ushered in drastic changes which from a tactical standpoint have been disastrous. The well-known theologian and philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand described the decline in the Church since the Council as an apocalyptic decline. This is certainly the result of a policy of openness to the Masonic errors it formerly condemned. While membership in Masonic organizations remains officially prohibited, Gnosticism's evolutionary theology and the New Age one-world religion goal are the predominant trends in the Church. The presence of New Age theologians, drawing from a seemingly endless supply of blasphemous doctrines, is not new. It is interesting to note that as theosophy began to make its presence felt in the latter 19th century, liberalism began to gain ground in Catholic theological circles. Through the vigilance of Popes Pius IX, Leo XIII, and St. Pius X, the Church was preserved from the devastating effects of liberalism and modernism. In simple summary, the modernist teaches that all creeds, including the Catholic doctrine, are just passing adaptations which will need to be changed as humanity advances to higher degrees of global consciousness. The theories of theological liberalism, then and now, bear a striking resemblance to the evolutionary ideas found in theosophy. Theosophical theories have been widely accepted by modernists in the Church primarily through the teachings of the Jesuit priest Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, born in France in 1881 and died in New York City in 1955. His writings, though prescribed by the Church, remain the standard theology in many of our seminaries. Deschardins was a paleontologist who accepted Darwin's theory of evolution as a fact and was involved in two of the most infamous evolution frauds, Piltdown Man and Peking Man. He attempted to conform his theology to evolutionary science and ended up adopting theosophical views. Tehard's theological distortions are not restricted to academia. This is tragically apparent even from the gaudy banners currently strewn about our sanctuaries which read, Commitment to God is commitment to change. An equally important trend among liberal Catholics since the close of the 19th century has been participation in religious unity movements. Again, the connection here with theosophical thought and the goals of the New Age is undeniable. The Society played a prominent role at the World Parliament of Religions in 1893 held in Chicago. Nearly every conceivable religion was represented at the Parliament, including Catholicism. But as one would expect under such circumstances, compromise prevailed. 
Pope Leo XIII, alarmed by the reports about the meeting, prohibited the American hierarchy from future participation in interreligious conferences and condemned what he called the resurgence of Pelagianism, which inspired such congresses. Subsequent warnings were issued by Rome, culminating in Pope Pius XI's encyclical Mortalium Animos of 1928, which clearly summarized the official Catholic response to the unity efforts. The Catholic Church, he said, is not in search of unity. She already has it. The Church invites all to the unity and truth she alone possesses in being the true Church of Jesus Christ. This remained the Church's position until Vatican II. Then came the ecumenical movement into the life of the Church, and with it the spirit of the world parliament of religions. The poison of our epoch, the poison of the New Age, continues seeping into the Church. New Age authors have acknowledged and praised the disciples of Deschardins and the enlightened Catholics of our day, including bishops, clergy, and religious, who are leading the Church into the one-world religion. The New Agers have foretold in their writings how enlightened members of the established order will lead the way in repudiating Orthodox churchianity and theology. Theology professors at Catholic universities across the country for decades have been corrupting their students with New Age doctrine. The teachings they constantly promote are that it's time to abandon the idea that the Catholic Church is the one true Christian church. They say the world is ready for a more democratic church, which is open to all beliefs and preaches universal salvation. In this new church, missionary activity as it was once known, that is, the preaching of the gospel, will be superfluous. The idea of mission is reduced to interreligious dialogue with no compelling reason for helping anyone come to the knowledge of the truth and enter the Catholic Church. Today's missionaries are urged to discover Christ already within the people of other religions, even though these people may never heard of Christ. St. Paul warned the Corinthians about false prophets, deceitful men who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. These, he says, imitate Satan, who transforms himself into an angel of light to deceive even the elect. But the proud deceiver has an abiding fear. He fears the one pure creature he could never deceive, the humble Virgin Mother of God. We know the integral role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in this whole drama. She will crush the head of the serpent. St. Maximilian Kolbe, who dedicated his life to fighting this great battle, said, Modern times are dominated by Satan and will be more so in the future. The conflict with hell cannot be engaged by men, even the most clever. The Immaculata has from God the promise of victory over Satan. From the Housetops is a Catholic periodical dedicated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Its purpose is to proclaim the faith clearly and without compromise. Each issue of From the Housetops offers the priceless truth and wisdom of the Catholic faith through inspirational lives of the saints and timeless treasures of Catholic doctrine. To get subscription information, back issues, and a free copy, go to saintbenedict.com, S-A-I-N-T, benedict.com, and look for From the Housetops. Temptation, far from being an evil, may be turned to our great advantage. No moral evil is possible excepting insofar as the will consents to it. As long as the door of the will is closed, the devil and the imagination may make a noise around the heart, 
but they cannot soil its purity. This is why Jesus Christ and all the saints have been subjected to the trials of temptation, without their trial having occasioned the least injury to their holiness. This is why to be cast down in temptation is unreasonable. It is either occasioned by self-love, being annoyed at seeing itself so miserable, or else a want of confidence in God, who never fails anyone who calls upon him, or else it is the cowardice of a soul, which imagines that it stands alone with its weakness, and without the help of God. Far from temptation being an evil, it may, on the contrary, be turned to our great advantage. For first, it gives us an opportunity of glorifying God, since, by generously resisting it, we prove our fidelity to him, we combat his enemies, and we triumph. Second, it exercises us in humility, by revealing the evil basis which exists in us. In the spirit of prayer, by making us feel the need of having recourse to God, in vigilance, by warning us to mistrust our own strength and to fly from the occasions of evil, in divine love, by its causing to shine forth the goodness of God, who is willing to lower his grace, to lower even himself by communion to so depraved a level as ours. It prevents laxity, it awakens fervor, it gives to virtue a firmer and more solid character. It teaches us to know ourselves. It gives the soul an opportunity to acquire more graces in this world and more glory in the next world in proportion to the merits with which it enriches it and renders it more worthy of God, like the saints of whom it is written, God hath tried them and found them worthy of himself. Wisdom chapter 3 This is why God said to the people of Israel, I would not destroy them from your face, that you may have enemies. Judges chapter 3 And Pope Leo also said in his sermons, in the same sense, It is well for the soul to be afraid of falling and to have a battle constantly to wage. The faithful soul derives from temptation to evil the same fruit as from inspiration to good. It is an opportunity for it to tend towards perfection in the contrary virtue, with all the good will of which it is capable. In temptations of the senses, it raises itself to the infinite glory of God, placed so high above all low and sensual views. In mental temptation, it takes refuge in its nothingness. In temptations to pleasure, it loves to embrace the cross. Is it thus that we profit by temptation? May the most holy, most sacred, most adorable, most incomprehensible and ineffable name of God be forever praised, blessed, loved, adored, and glorified in heaven, on earth, and in the hells by all the creatures of God and by the sacred heart of our Lord Jesus Christ in the most holy sacrament of the altar. Amen. The Mother of God begged the children of Fatima to pray, pray a great deal and make sacrifices for sinners. For many souls go to hell because they have no one to sacrifice and pray for them. Before Our Lady appeared at Fatima, an angel taught the children to pray, My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. I beg pardon of you for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. From the following of Christ. O Father of mercies, and God of all consolation, I give thanks to thee, that sometimes thou art pleased to cherish with thy consolation me who am unworthy of any consolation. Thou art my glory and the exultation of my heart. 
Thou art my hope and my refuge in the day of my tribulation. From the House Stops is produced by the slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, Still River, Massachusetts.